This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. It's an understatement to say that it's been quite the year for political journalism. This week, I'm joined by two people who have been at the center of it all. Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman are the brains behind the must-read DC newsletter, Politico Playbook. We talked about their takeover of the newsletter back in the summer of 2016, covering the Trump administration, and what we can expect in 2018. We're both huddled over a uh, speakerphone. We could change our arrangement if that if that's if not good. Okay, we'll Where exactly are you guys now? We are in uh, the House Periodical Press Gallery in the Capitol, where we work most days. Uh, but we were just we were just coming back from an interview, and uh, we were not allowed in the Capitol. Yeah, what's going on down there? What, it was. I think we, we we don't know, but someone told us a radiation detector uh, uh, sensor was was tripped. So they were scanning like the cars and stuff with like radiation detectors. But I think they cleared us. So hopefully everything's okay. <laughs> All right. So yeah, no big deal. Just a little, you know, spare plutonium. Right. So I want to go back to the dog days of the 2016 campaign. You two, along with Daniel Lippman, took over Playbook that July. What were your goals filling the shoes of someone like Mike Allen? And what's been the most surprising thing about the work you've done over the past year and a half? So, yeah, it's definitely a, a daunting task to look at uh, from the beginning. But I think what we tried to do was three main things. Uh, one, you know, it was a 10-year-old product that hadn't been updated. It was a morning newsletter. And, you know, it was a great newsletter, and we, it, we inherited it, which has been great. But we really wanted to update the look and feel of it for the 21st century. So it was made for a BlackBerry. Obviously, people don't use those to, to read their email. Uh, so we did that. We started a website. We also launched a podcast uh, that is kind of an audio briefing every morning, which is recognizing, obviously, that a lot of podcast listeners uh, that have kind of entered the marketplace. And we also ultimately, not in the beginning, but try to be reflective of the market of just how fast the news cycle is. We now do a PM uh, newsletter as well. So that's kind of on the product side of things. We also wanted to update the audience. So we wanted to keep the people that had been loyal uh, readers for a long time with mics, but also understand that they, that was started in the Bush administration. That was kind of his reference point. And our reference point was coming of age as reporters in the Obama administration and now in the Trump administration. And so making sure that the ecosystem of readers is reflective of the new power brokers and the new influencers in Washington. And the third thing we really did a lot of, and, and it's kind of less of the editorial product in the written sense, but we had, you know, Mike had done morning kind of playbook interviews and we have expanded our event series to do still do those newsmaker interviews, but also looking at kind of the constellation of Playbook, which is obviously us as the, the hub of that wheel, but you have Playbooks in six states. We have a Playbook in Brussels. We have a Playbook in London. And so we go out and we travel and do a lot of newsmaker events in the states, as well as we've launched more recently the Playbook University events, so events uh, on college campuses trying to get readers and people that are politi- politically engaged at 18 starting to understand no playbook, you know, instead of having them when they're 30 and starting on the Hill. Yeah, you mentioned uh, getting out into the country, and Politico has built its reputation on kind of being an inside-the-beltway publication, but 
the sites obviously changed. The, the multiple sites have changed. And you seem to have made a special effort to be a part of that, to get out of D.C. So what's your thought process in expanding your universe beyond the Beltway? So it's, it's, it's both expanding it and keeping it the same, and I'll, uh, I'll explain why. We, the greatest thing about Playbook and Politico is we know who we are, right? We, we are an Inside the Beltway publication, uh, and, and for our state publications, they're inside their proverbial Beltway, right? But Playbook is a newsletter of and about Washington. We, um, we exist to cover the Capitol and to cover legislating and to cover the city and to cover the scene. But we find in, like, and this is going to sound cliche and I hope it doesn't, but, like, in an increasingly interconnected and regulated society, uh, and that's not a political statement. I just mean that new industries are sprouting up and that things are changing. So people are more and more interested in Washington, both from a business standpoint and, frankly, from an entertainment standpoint, in that more people are interested in politics as pop culture and politics as a hobby as ever before. So we will never change who we are. Uh, we'll never change what we cover. We'll never change our DNA. But we believe that our DNA is of interest, and we, and we believed it at the beginning in the last, you know, uh, you know, 17 months since we took over, however long it's been, uh, it's borne out to be true that not only do people in Washington care about Washington, but people in San Francisco care, people in Austin care, people in Los Angeles care, people in New York care, people in Seattle care. And what we've tried to do is put some infrastructure around our newsletter and, 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 and put some, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, meat on the bone and put some um, uh, uh, an organization around uh, what was a product that kind of grew organically with Politico. What has been the biggest difference between the first five months of this newsletter and what you've been doing for the last year or so? Uh, I would say mainly the, the news cycle has changed so dramatically. I mean, I think it had already been kind of supercharged as the internet and kind of social media and Twitter and has become a reporting tool, but certainly in the Trump era, they aren't playing by the guidelines that every other administration, and for the most part, Republican and Democratic leaders on the Hill have in terms of kind of what the windows are for breaking news, when to make news. You know, it used to be the weekends were kind of sleepy. I think, you know, as I mentioned, we started a PM newsletter based on the fact that, you know, our newsletter in the morning comes out, Playbook comes out at 6 or 6.30, by 1 p.m. when people who've been in meetings all day look up from, you know, their their desktop and they say, what's happening in the world, you could have an entirely different news cycle. That, to me, is the biggest change. And I would say, let me just add a little bit to that. Uh, I agree every, with everything Anna just said, but a lot hasn't changed in that the people that run the town, run the city, uh, yes, there are some new faces, but in a lot of cases, the people who are cutting the deals behind the scenes are people that we've been dealing with for a long time, both on Capitol Hill and in the Trump administration. The, the, as much as Trump has talked about changing, turning the city upside down and shaking all the, you know, all the dust off, uh, he's hired a lot of people with significant Washington experience, people that you know, our readers know, but they might, people might not know in New York and, and across the country. But uh, So in that sense, not a lot has changed because there are some operators in the Trump administration and, of course, on Capitol Hill who are here for the, the Obama administration. Right. No, that makes sense. And so as, Anna, you mentioned the speed changing, I'm interested in a, a peek behind the curtain at the production of now your two, two newsletters. What does that look like on a daily basis? 
so I think one of the things that we, when we took over Playbook, really wanted to do was, you know, we're, we're hard news reporters. We spent our career breaking news, you know, getting scoops on the hills, at the White House, on the campaign trail, and wanted to make sure that Playbook was reflective of that and Playbook was a home where people would turn to it because it had something that wasn't in any other paper. Yes, we often highlight work of our own colleagues and obviously of our top competitors when they're breaking stories as well. But that's one of the things I think we spent a ton of time doing. So, I mean, our day starts very early, between 3.30 and 4 in the morning. Jake and I are G-chatting. You know, we often are trying to get news all day long to put at the top of Playbook. And so, you know, I think we we finish one Playbook, and uh, we kind of start, you know, around 10 or so on the next one. And we have a a guy, um, Zach Montalero, that is awesome, and he's our producer. He helps us with our uh, podcast every day and also does a lot on the PM edition. When do you sleep? Uh, we sleep enough, uh, and, and you know we sleep enough is the answer. Uh, and you get used to it, right? You get you get used to the pace, and the, and you know the, it was, it's just a different kind of pace, right? Like when we were daily beat reporters here on Capitol Hill, we would you know get in, and it would be a sprint to six o'clock when we had to file our our daily stories and 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 file stories throughout the day. It's just a different kind of hustle now, and and we feel like actually we we're writing Anna and I are writing this book, which will be pu- published by Crown. In, in 2019 about um, uh, Congress in the era of Trump, about how Washington works or Washington doesn't work. Uh, we don't know the answer to that yet, of course, in the Trump, in the Trump era, in the first two years of the Trump administration. So it's actually, uh, our, our, just, our timing has changed. It's become a different time frame in which we live our lives. So I guess is the best way to think of it. You mentioned the book, and that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. For all the focus on Trump and the presidency, I get the impression that you both find Congress more fascinating in some ways. Yes. <laughs> Short answer. Yeah. No, I think we definitely are kind of creatures of the Hill and of Washington. A lot of reporters are, are White House reporters. They want to be campaign reporters. We are people who spent our entire career up here. I, I also covered you know, money and politics and lobbying, but really the intersection of power in Washington. And so from our perspective, you know, we see a lot of our role kind of calling balls and strikes, and it's not a partisan thing, but it's, you know, when somebody either on the Hill or in the White House says something, and we're going to get tax reform done before Thanksgiving, and you just know based on the schedule, based on the, you know, the ways that this institution works, you can say, no, that's never going to happen. So, you know, from our perspective, Trump is interesting, and he's, a, he's definitely a figure and a character here, but we are interested in, you know, for the book purpose in particular, how Congress is dealing with him, his, their interactions with him, but really how did some of these major deals, you know, is this a, a time where there's going to be a lot of governing where maybe some really big packages get through, or, or is, does that not happen? I want to just add to that one, one thing. A lot of members of Congress, there's a famous saying on Capitol Hill when talking about the presidency, and it, it goes like this, we were here before him and we'll be here after him. So in many ways, the presidency is a fleeting institution because it's, it's time limited, right? I mean, you look at some members on, on Capitol Hill, they've been here 30 years and, it's, and they're still kicking and they, they don't have any plan, of, plan to leave. So how, it's, it's fascinating to us how those people uh, operate in a, under a certain presidency, uh, if that makes sense, how people um, change their behaviors or adapt to a new set of circumstances. And uh, and and how the president adapts to dealing with Congress. So I, those that's what makes it fascinating to us. And also, there's 535 of them, so there's no shortage of really good stories. I know that time period that the book's going to cover will take us through the midterm elections. 
but we're basically at the halfway point here. So can you give us a, a scorecard? Can you give us a, a sneak preview of what your reflections are on this first year? Well, it, you know, the difficulty in writing a book in real time is that, you know, and we're writing a book that's going to come out shortly after the midterms, is that you're writing it in real time and you don't know what has the most resonance at the end of the day, right? I mean, health care for a long time seemed like it would define this Congress. It, it, at this point, it doesn't, at least at this moment, it's not. Um, I, I think what we're trying to do in, is pretty simple and is what we've been trying to do at Politico since we both got here in 2009 and 2010. We're trying to get readers into the rooms they can't get into, into the meetings they're not invited to, behind the scenes into these meetings where the clashes happen. And, and uh, we, we feel lucky because we have a lot of very good reporting on this already. And we're, as you said, we're only at the halfway point. Uh, but our observation is um, it took a while for Trump to, to adapt. And I think the Trump administration is definitely hitting a little bit more of a stride when it comes to tax reform. It is working better with Capitol Hill. But listen, taunting Congress has not, according to both Republicans and Democrats, this is in our observation, is not a, a strategy that, that has been uh, particularly successful for this president in, in many ways. Maybe it'll change. But as of right now, members of Congress don't like to be, don't like to be taunted and, um, on either side of the aisle, and you've seen that. Um, uh, uh, so that's one one dynamic. I think also the power of the presidency. There is a, a great power to the presidency, but I think it oftentimes is overstated. There's there's two sides to this equation. There's Capitol Hill and there's the presidency, and both in many ways have equal weight. So those are two just quick observations, or a few. I'm not sure if those are two <laughs> or three, but just some quick observations on the dynamics as they are right now. I know a lot of political reporters have gotten out of the prediction game after last year. But I'm going to ask. Yeah, we're not in the prediction game. (laughs) Well, can you give us a forecast of maybe some of the themes you expect will be part of that storyline going forward in 2018? I I would say a couple of things. One, I think one of the main storylines is going to be, uh, and I think it matters for both Republicans and Democrats, is does Donald Trump's brand remain separate from the Republican Party or do they meld together? I think there's different theories of the case of whether or not that's going to happen, particularly if tax reform is successful and they're kind of seen as embracing each other. But I think both Republicans and Democrats would say if if they remain separate, it will be harder for Democrats to have a wave election. I I think another thing that you're seeing with all the sexual harassment issues is kind of and the culture of the swamp and the hating of Washington. And so I think one of the things you're going to see in this election cycle is who is going to be defined by the swamp and owning Washington. Trump obviously ran on the campaign of Drain the Swamp. You know, I'm, a, I'm an outsider. I'm going to come in and cut deals that can never be done by the people that are entrenched here. And so I think at, in the Senate and in the House, you're going to see that dynamic play out quite a bit. And then I think, you know, the other real question is going to be this noose of leadership where you're going to have Republicans running against Nancy Pelosi and the, you know, the Washington, California liberal uh, you know, and you have already seen it with Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and Democrats really trying to pit those races against saying, you know, Mitch McConnell is the entrenched guy. He's, he's going to be the reason for these people because their popularity is so low right now. And, you know, will that have an effect in those races? One thing that comes across in your reporting and your writing is that even in the midst of this bitter political time, uh, I know I'm sure Washington can often be uh, a frustrating place both to report and to be a politician. But it seems like you guys really love politics. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I'm just interested in, in this question of, are you having fun this year? It's a complicated question, but yes. I mean, uh, of course, like, I got tired. We all got tired during the Obama administration, too. Uh, remember, like, the Republicans were at all-out war with the Obama administration uh, in from 2010 to 2016, and we had crisis after crisis after crisis. And th- we don't have that right now. Um, uh, that That's a tiring element of, of covering politics. But, yeah, it's fun. I mean, uh, especially because we're able to do – Anna and I spent a lot of time – writing daily stories now we write two newsletters totally different beast we do events this you know we just we just did a a, a, a live event with marco rubio this morning and um and we're, we have other ones planned and we're we're doing and we never really did events in the past we did a few here and there so those are fun we get to to um uh talk about a product that we're passionate about and a newsroom that we're passionate about but yeah, like anything, you get tired of yeah. covering the same thing and covering fights, and you're like, man, why can't this be easier? But part, that's that's the way the system was designed, and like we 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 do love the game, we really yeah. do. We do love the back and forth and the characters and the people. The people are just super super fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think two things. I was like, Trump has created a new dynamic, so you have a new player that's obviously very uh, unpredictable. And that adds into, you know, what ha- the kind of the strate- strategic decisions on the Hill and in downtown. And, you know, it's really changed the game a little bit in terms of at least there's a, a new dynamic in there. And I think you're, I think Jake's really right. Like, Playbook in particular is about characters. You know, it's about kind of the behind-the-scenes reporting. And so, like, getting up every morning and being able to say you have a scoop is, like, what makes you feel like you're alive in the morning. Jake Sherman and Anna Palmer, thanks so much for your time today. Thank thanks you. For having it was fun. Turning to the news of the week, I'm joined by my colleagues, Meg Dalton and Karen Cahoe. Meg, thanks for being here. Thank you, Pete. And Karen, great to have you back. Thanks so much. For the past 13 months, NBC has played a central, if somewhat disappointing, role in the unfolding stories of sexual assault by powerful men. Last October, of course, it was scooped on a story coming out of its own network with regard to the Trump Access Hollywood tape. And earlier this year, it let Ronan Farrow walk with his bombshell story on Harvey Weinstein, which was part of what brought us to this moment. Now, after accusations against its biggest star, the issue has landed on its front step. Yeah. Uh, This week, Matt Lauer was fired immediately after allegations of sexual harassment and assault emerged. It made a lot of people question NBC, considering the fact that they did not pursue the Access Hollywood tapes last year and also let go, as you mentioned, of Ronan Farrow's explosive Weinstein, you know, two-part series. And that's one of the questions I think a lot of people are asking is, are those events connected? I don't know. And I don't think anyone except those within the walls of NBC knows that at this moment. But because Lauer is such a big star and because at least some people had been hearing these stories for a number of years... It's hard not to think there was a, the, it's hard not to think that at the very least there was a culture that perhaps didn't take sexual assault, sexual harassment as seriously as it should have. There are already tweets that came out from former staff who worked at NBC saying that you know it was very difficult or they were denied exit interviews, you know, following their decision to leave the network. I mean, there have been women who have been openly outspoken about the culture in regards to their treatment. 
And I think there's a turning point also in terms of not just sexual harassment and assault, but in terms of toxic workplace environments. Yeah, and I, I think you mentioned the turning point, the fact that NBC did act so quickly. The first report apparently came in on Monday evening at 6 p.m., and by 4 a.m. Wednesday morning, Andy Lack was calling Savannah Guthrie and Hoda Cobb to tell them that they'd be going on without Lauer, that he had been fired. Now, part of that swiftness, I'm sure, is because of the moment that was started in part by a story that NBC let get away, the Harvey Weinstein story. It's my understanding for the timeline, though, for NBC also, is that the reason why the woman came forward on Monday night was because she was part of the stories at either the New York Times or Variety. And so, you know, they were basically saying, this story is going forward. You know, we're in the confirmation process. And and that is my understanding from the reporting. Oh, yeah. Let's also not forget with Mark Halperin, uh, who was a commentator for MSNBC, but, you know, mostly known for his work on ABC. When allegations emerged against him, it took a couple of days for the leadership to to give him the boot. Um, So the fact that a major network is responding so swiftly and immediately does uh, give us a little bit of reassurance. However, this is also a network that has employed both Donald Trump and Bill Cosby. Um, So let's not forget that. Yeah, I think the idea of corporate culture changing and being more receptive is something we're seeing, although, Karen, you mentioned that there are some mitigating circumstances in the case of NBC in that a story was coming down the road. This is a pretty obvious situation where, like, it's hard to deny that you knew something wasn't right with Matt Lauer and his behavior. I mean, considering the fact that in one of the, the, the most shocking things about the variety piece that a lot of people were talking about and that kind of made me unsettled was the fact that he had a button installed at his desk that allowed him to lock the door without getting up. That is not something Matt Lauer, from what I know, can do on his own. It requires a little bit of engineering. Um, And so the fact that, like, people were definitely aware of that and, like, that should have set set off some alarms if if nothing else, if his behavior hadn't already. So it makes you question how many people knew of this behavior and for how long. Yeah, and I'm sure this is a topic and an issue that we will return to as we have so often over the past couple months. It's just striking to think about how quickly things are changing at many of the nation's biggest news organizations. In the last 10 days, two of the network morning shows have lost their male anchors. I expect that there will be more changes, whether they're at magazines, newspapers, television networks to come. Turning now to newspapers, we're going to talk about Two stories, one, an example of one of the country's great papers stumbling a bit, and another, their major competitor, providing a moment of catharsis and celebration for journalism. Last weekend, the New York Times printed a profile of Tony Hovater, a Nazi sympathizer in Ohio, in a piece that many people felt missed the mark. In addition to the fact that there was immediate criticism regarding the details, specific details, everything from his name to his biography and also uh, the tone, it was incredibly demoralizing for many journalists in the industry who have been the target of you know, anti-Semitism and racist uh, comments or even who saw what happened in Charlottesville in terms of the very soft, sympathetic tone that has not been granted in many other stories. And it didn't answer any major questions. It didn't provide greater context to why this person became the way they did. So it, it was it was like this really soft puff piece that didn't 
seek to address any major questions or unveil anything uh, for the public benefit. It's interesting. I think I kind of disagree that it didn't seek to unveil anything about Hovater's evolution. Yeah. And we saw in the reaction to this, the reporter, Richard Fawcett, wrote a first-person explanation of how he had sought out these answers and his story had a hole at its heart and that was going to have to be a feature, not a bug. The New York Times national editor, Mark Lacey, in responding to the criticism said, we understand that some people are upset, some other people appreciated what we were doing, but we hear the criticism. Um, In response to that, I reached out to a bunch of journalists who have covered extremists really well, whether those are foreign extremists or domestic extremists, and got some really interesting feedback um, in a piece that's up at CJR right now. But the one that stuck with me the most uh, was I talked to Ijeoma Luo about her piece on Rachel Dolezal from earlier this year and the idea of reporting on dangerous people who hold dangerous ideas. And In discussing this New York Times Nazi story, one of the pieces of advice she had was that when you go into these stories as a journalist, you need to have your priorities straight. The quote that stuck with me was, she said, anyone going into these conversations with Nazis has to understand that our entire history has always prioritized white people. Even in discussions of slavery, even in discussions of police brutality against black people, it has always prioritized questions like whether or not white people are better than they used to be whether or not white people eventually did the right thing. There's absolutely no excuse for adding to that. I think right now the frustration is that there have been multiple features on people with extremist and terrible views. Like, we know this is happening, and exactly what Meg said, if you're going to continue this coverage, which I understand is an integral part of American culture and its population, then you have to push the conversation further. And failing to do so in a place like the New York Times with the resources that they invested in this piece is disappointing your current audience and the audience that you're trying to bring into the organization. And there's a there's a you know a famous saying within journalism that you have to kill your darlings, and sometimes it means you know killing a story when the answers aren't when the questions that you're seeking out are not answered. Yeah, I think they were justified in trying to do this, but Meg, as you said, when you don't get the story, sometimes better not to run it. Turning to the Times's biggest competitor, the Washington Post brought all journalists a moment, as I said, of catharsis and celebration earlier this week when they released a reverse sting video on James O'Keefe and his Project Veritas anti-journalism kind of cynical efforts to discredit the mainstream media. I know we were all in the office when this came out and all engaged with the rest of the journalism community in some level of appreciation for the Post and joy in seeing O'Keefe go down. So, Karen, what exactly happened? So, it's my understanding that O'Keefe had hired a a woman who posed as a victim of Roy Moore's and, and gotten her pregnant. Right. The woman claimed that Moore had impregnated her when she was 15 years old, and she was discussing the idea with the Post reporters of going public with this. Yes. And so what happened was uh, the Post started fact-checking her even between interviews and went through the process of explaining how they did so through various staff and investigating her backstory and these details. And in follow-up interviews, which were taped for posterity, revealed that any time that they received a tip, they would investigate it further and that her story did not check out by any means. 
it was pretty rewarding to watch the video of the Washington Post. Was her name? Sorry. Um, it was pretty rewarding to watch the video where the Washington Post reporter Stephanie McCroman was kind of softly interrogating uh, the woman that was posing as a Roy Moore accuser. You know, in it, she's she's very respectfully and politely and calmly twisting the knife. It's twisting the knife, uh, or like you know, uh, as Karen mentioned, kind of like poking at the holes in the story. The Washington Post reporter called her out for having a GoFundMe page that kind of explicitly lays out her feelings towards the, quote, mainstream media um, and how, like, her goal is to essentially take it down, much like the goal of Project Veritas. And so it was 10 minutes, essentially, of giving her, you know, an opportunity to, to comment on the story, which I thought was above and beyond what she had to do at that point. I think one of the things I appreciated most about this story was it laid out for the public, both in video and in print, the way a great newspaper operates. The Post reporters explained how they fact-check their sources, how they have not just reporters, but researchers digging into people's histories, their online histories, anything they can document, and getting to the truth. And then there was also this explanation in the story of how off-the-record works. Everything this woman, Jamie Phillips, had said was supposedly off-the-record. But the Post ended up printing what she said. And Marty Barron, the executive editor of the Post, explained in the story, quote, we always honor off-the-record agreements when they're entered into in good faith. And then he continued, because of our customary journalistic rigor, we weren't fooled, and we can't honor an off-the-record agreement that was solicited in maliciously bad faith, which was just this moment where the public, I think, could understand, hopefully, a little bit more about how journalists operate and Again, I, I just think this was a great piece of work by The Post. It it continues to do great work on the Roy Moore story, which they were the first to break. Um, overall, just a good week for journalism. And it's also a cautionary tale for journalists uh, to be more vigilant in with their sourcing and researching and fact-checking at a time like this. Uh, you know, it was unveiled this morning that, you know, for months this woman had been infiltrating, if you want to use that word, the kind of journalism network scene of D.C. And, 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 and so she, she was essentially trying to go like undercover for months at a time. I think it's really astonishing the level of detail in which the Post reporters had been able to collate the appearances that she had made at various events. I mean, we're in a time now where a lot of journalists, this is their support system, their way to find new jobs. And you know, now the Post has said explicitly that they have to screen, you know, requests to visit the newsroom. And, and there's a level of nervousness and security because this attitude of requests at good faith, you know, to converse, to visit, to seek advice has been totally taken. And it's really depressing. Yeah. As you guys mentioned, it's important to know that these people are out there trying to maliciously infiltrate our organizations and catch people making a mistake. But it's still nice when they get caught and when it's done in such a meticulous and public way. That's our show. Thanks, as always, for kicking it with us. You can check out all the great content we've got up at CJR.org, and we'll see you next week.